0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top news stories and analysis every single week. Um, I'm James, and with me today, I have Jessica from the SOMEX team and a very special guest, Liam Cahill. You may recognize Liam from such LinkedIn articles as 11 things I'd like to see national bodies tackle uh, and lots of other interesting content that he has put out recently um he's been to a lot of health tech events recently that he's done some interesting write-ups of uh we may get onto that but yeah it's Liam it's a pleasure to have you on um you are certainly a very fashionable commentator on the digital health world at the moment so yeah welcome and how are you doing? Yeah, I'm
1: doing good, thanks. Um, I've never called fashionable in the start of a podcast, I'll take that, even if it was in a different context. <laughs> um, yeah, really good, thanks. Like, re- really, really, really diverse and busy week, so it's nice It's nice to top this off by uh, doing a roundup with you and love Pigeon Podcast, really great to be on with you guys, you know, kind of feels like I've made it this week because I'm on the Pigeon Podcast, so great to be here.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that, I don't know about that, <laughs> but it is certainly a pleasure to have you on. Um, you've got you're someone that's clearly willing to put their opinion out there and I think when we started this podcast we did say like when we wanted guests we wanted people that had good opinions on stuff and that actually wanted to tell people what's on their mind and we can actually get some opinion and not that we want to go down the full LBC route of getting incredibly polarizing people on but certainly people with a strong opinion so that we can have a bit of debate and yeah why, why why the heck not and I've really enjoyed your, and I'm not just saying this I have really enjoyed your content recently because I think you have been willing to stick your neck out and go this is what I actually think about stuff and I've got a huge amount of respect for that because if you if anyone that's willing to live and die by the sword I think fair play and I think you're always well thought out with what you say it's, it's never it's never on a whim and you know incredibly emotive or you know one-sided or any of those things it's 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 well thought out and good content. So um I think it's appreciated for for balance in in the health tech world right now. So yeah, kudos to you. Well
1: thank you. Um like I don't know, like I, I'm a, I'm a public servant above all else. I may not work in the NHS at the moment, but you know, I advise NHS and I work with loads of different organizations. Like, you know, I spent my whole Wednesday in a hospice working with the team about how they could improve care. Like this is where I've been for 17 years and I really care about it. But the system is in a really terrible state at the moment. And I think the way that the system is kind of run, it's very difficult. Like I'm advised to NHS England, so I shouldn't really be saying things that are maybe of a slightly critical nature. But sometimes you've got to be prepared to like speak out about things that are going to affect the system, even if it's not in your interest. So I do have a moment before I send some of these articles, put these articles out where I'm like, "Uh, should I put this out? But then like if not how are we going to change the system so in want some small part if it helps then
0: it's really important to do love it man um looking forward to getting into the stories today so let's get into it our first story today is written by your good self it is a linkedin article titled 11 things i'd like to see national bodies tackle to make uk digital health and health tech more viable. I think, first of all, what I absolutely love about that headline is that you know exactly what you're getting out of this article. It's incredibly straight down the line and clearly going to give me some value. So I've had a read of this, mate. It's, it's a great article. I know you want to focus on some bits. But first of all, why did you write this? Um, I've had this bucket list floating around for a little while. And
1: those in the know will know that maybe there is a certain political figure who is preparing for an election, wandering around asking for ideas. And someone asked the list and it was like really busy in the morning and I just wrote 11 things down quickly a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, I should probably put this out. And so... Yeah, um, as I mentioned in a post the other day, I was, I was feeling a little bit blue in the morning just about the state of the system and everything in the wider world. And I was like, oh, I'm going to help myself get back into my group to write this. But um, I've been spending, I spend a lot of time doing systems thinking in the system and trying to help systems like I've been just teaching design thinking and systems thinking to the health foundation to a group within them. And thinking that like there's a saying by Peter Senge that today's, um, prop, uh, today's problems are yesterday's solutions. And I think you know, if we want health tech to thrive over the coming time, we need to think about some of the enablers, not the short term immediate actions. And I think given the challenges we face in the system at the moment, we're being slightly overwhelmed by short term interactions that will create the next phase of problems. And so I tried to think about specific areas where this could become an enabler of something to happen in one years, two years and three years in order to kind of do it, because my bucket list is probably about 86 long but there were some specific areas and they're all oriented towards how could this enable something to happen quicker more safely and you know in in a way where we're actually getting scale for different organizations at different levels so um and 11 came out for some reason so that was that
0: nice um which of the 11 do you want to talk about today any that you particularly want to highlight Ooh. um Depends on the given day. It's Friday.
1: Um, so some of them are kind of quite related to each other, mm. some that are two-part ones. And I think some of the biggest ones, some of the most impactful ones, probably relate to the current state of the, the electronic patient record market and some of the challenges that exist within it, um, the upcoming NHS app and the significant effect it's having on the market. Um, and then the other one, I suppose, is the thinking around health tech, around how do we commission something or how do we get uptake of a particular thing? And I suppose trying to think about the wider complexities within the system rather than kind of saying, well, we'll just pay for the act to happen and then not necessarily think about, like we can get into it, of course, um, uh, to think about, well, does that require a pharmacist or someone in a general practice to be paid? Who's thinking about the locally enhanced service and what's the sort of surrounding frameworks around those things? So um, if any of those would be, useful topics for you to jump into then they're probably my top
0: three that i i I put forward i know jess you've had a read of this what do you think
2: i reckon let's start with the app because i think you're right that you know it's it's an interesting focal point that feels potentially underutilized and a lot of what you were talking about there's lots of organizations doing things in this space and it strikes me that actually better curation of that service and of the services that they're providing, perhaps you better collaboration and, dare I say it, interoperability, Um, you know, might get us closer to what we need and perhaps also thinking about how this fits in with um, patient journeys and care pathways and and the certain triggers for releasing certain information. I think, you know, you're absolutely right talking about that. Systems-level thinking, it's great having the app, how can we actually maximize its potential and its power over and above it just existing as an app with the functions that it already has? So, so go on, tell us what
1: you think. I spend a lot of time working with frontline services of all different kinds of shape and size, and often they've got a load of fr- frustrations that, you know, they're told that they're supposed to improve supported self-management and things like that. They're told that they're supposed to be able to work more efficiently using digital, but realistically that care interaction has to have a safe passage and an appropriate way it can get from A to B. And like if we take a physio service or a speech service or a health visiting service and, you know, a new mom who wants some help with mastitis or something like that, we've got, um, you know, right now we've got like a, a team that has no other option than to go and visit. So there is no time saving that we can make. And in, a, in, a, in an NHS, which is measured by minutes and hours in terms of care, that's where productivity lives. Then if we're going to a care, we do need to be able to give them a functional channel. Now, you know, NHSX obviously held a very clear line that they wanted to have limited functionality and they didn't want it to be the whole thing. And so this fruity market of loads of different kinds of things came around and we had sprawl and everyone was worried about sprawl of apps and so on. So then what good looks like comes out and they say, well actually we want common communication platforms and we're going to do the, um, the NHS and once Tim Ferriss came in and obviously the, the shift from X um, changed. and. I suppose the problem now that we have is that we've got some clarity around the portal market, but by announcing the app, we've almost kind of almost put a pause on the whole market of portals. So if I'm a health tech company right now, and I'm thinking, should I build an interface? What should I build for? How should I, like if I can provide some care content or care experience, or I'm a care team that wants to do it, there's all of these big question marks around, well, actually, can we get this to the patient in this against this NHS vision? And so what I think could be really helpful nationally is some more clarity and ambition around, are we going to be able to share two-way multimedia content, um, questionnaires for triage, and to be able to say, well, actually, you know, should we see this patient over this patient and so on? Because this is where all of these little needs exist in services. And it has to be catered and supported to. And right now, like, it's great to see that The shift has happened with the nhs app but there's it feels like there's a whole world inside and outside the nhs that's waiting to see what they can actually functionally do with it and so seeing some more and some more ambition in the areas i mentioned i think would be really helpful for everybody concerned
2: do you think the team that are managing the app have a vision for what that looks like or they have clarity on what the solution is to getting to I guess, that version of reality that you've just described.
1: Uh, you, you couldn't ask that question at a more complex time. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> just had their voluntary redundancies. We've got lots. um basically, more or less the whole top tier of NHS England in digital has left, and we've got a new bunch coming through who are going to make their stamp. We've obviously got the digital plan for health and social care that gives us something. But we, you know, at 17 years in the system, I've seen a lot of plans come and go in my time. So One would hope that this is a consistent thing. One would hope that Labour are going to see the benefit of this and support it if they are the, you know, if they preside over it after the next election, which is likely. So um, I didn't really answer your question because I think at the moment that transience of people at the moment is, it it, uh, changes a different factor. Um, I always ask myself the question how much user engagement have they done around this? Because I think naturally there is a big tendency to look at infrastructural elements and think about the NHS as a big network of stuff, rather than these clinicians in these individual moments. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've, like I haven't engaged directly with that team, so I can't speak on behalf of it, but that I've always necessarily had confidence that all of the different crevices of care, and I understanding it's very hard and there's a lot of people trying their best, but have always necessarily been able to translate into those Many points that would hopefully, you know, um, support the um, support that support that mindset. So
0: um, there you go. Did not answer your question at all. <laughs> dodged, <laughs> dodged perfectly. Who knows? I will say as well though. This does this does highlight just how at mercy we are with a political cycle as well. When when the NHS is politicised, um, for for certain clinicians listening, or for for people that you know haven't had to understand as much um, I suppose, how politics and healthcare are linked, it is just worth highlighting, I think, something that you said there, which is that the ifs of we're approaching an, an election, we've just, okay, yes, we've just had these voluntary redundancies. Again, like in part money-saving goals to do something towards the election, I imagine there's something to do with that. But this notion that as as the government changes, you even mentioned it. People come in and try and make their stamp. There's a new team in that's got new ideas and new things. This lack of continuity, and then when a new government comes in, it's really then shaken up, and there's there's even less continuity at that point. So it's almost like. There's, there's, a, there's a long arc of the five-year political cycle, and that's a clear break in continuity. And then there's these smaller arcs going on of political decisions that are being made because of that five-year political cycle that are leading to these even shorter arcs of lack of continuity. And by lack of continuity, I just mean teams changing and then ideas changing and nobody being able to see these longer term projects through. And it's no wonder that we end up in conversations about why aren't we thinking about prevention? Why aren't we thinking about this in long term? Like, If things have got a 10-year payout or an eight-year payout, a government is only going to even consider that if it's a cross-party thing as part of like the committee and all that stuff, it's it's not going to be something that they champion and really put loads of weight behind. And I think it's just so, it's, I think it's just really important and so worth highlighting that 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 there is this lack of continuity because the NHS is politicised and healthcare is politicised, and you know the negatives on public healthcare system and the rest of it, but. Yeah, I, I do think that's interesting. And
1: there is, like, you know, when we look at the recent reform that has happened, i.e., it's still happening and probably will still be happening for the next year. Um, like, you know, obviously we focus on integration, on bringing health and social care together, we bring, you know, the, the structures working together. But what we are also, I know, what we often forget is that the reform also brought um, a slight eroding of the church and state split. That's happened between the two. So right now, there is more control that politicians have on the decisions that are being made in NHS. They, you know, the, one of the things they brought through was the ability to intervene more. Recently, we've seen, for example, that senior members of the DHC have been asked to come and work in the same office as the uh, Health, Health and Social Care Secretary. Um, there's a lot of elements within this because the NHS is a machine. You know, I'm, abs- I'm such a geeky, fascinated person by the and it all it's all about the mm-hmm. functional rules and dynamics. And these are the things. Actually, mean because the civil service exists, right? Totally deviation here, but the civil service exists to be able to provide stability and continuity during party yep, shifting correct. back and forth. The less independence we give to these institutions, such as the NHS, and to be able to robustly kind of you know have a degree. Like if we looked at Simon Stevens, he had a huge amount of independence in his team. Did that is not necessarily the case for Amanda at the moment in terms of what she has, right. and I think we're seeing this playing out. Quite a lot. Like in private discourse with national leaders since this change has come about, I hear that there's a lot of nervousness around how the health secretary is going to feel, how it's going to be received more so than may have been the case before. And this is because this filters down, right? Things filter down through the whole system. You know, this has a ripple effect. And it's a huge, important structural element that I think often we kind of miss that that's going to have a huge impact on the system itself.
0: And digital and tech. It's a funny one, isn't it, about the the, the the entire phrase arm's length body, you know, how how at arm's length are those arm's length bodies, um, like NHS England, like Health Education England, like Public Health England, like all these things, like how how arm's length really are they and how how influential it sounds like um that there's actual legislation passed to make sure that they are uh able to well, politicians able to have more of an effect. So, hmm, curious.
2: I've got a question, another one. So we talked about the political flux that ultimately, you know, I think public sector organisations are obviously always vulnerable to the political cycle anyway. And it really feels like we've been in some really tum- tumultuous political flux, particularly over the last... 12 months where we've had more prime ministers and secretaries of state than you can shake a stick at but obviously we, we're we going into this new cycle now as we approach a general election i think this is something we talked about on a previous episode and we've we've touched on today already that ultimately there's no real incentivization for a government now to be making seismic changes that actually are we gonna not see the, the benefit or the outcomes of those until after the election. So if you were talking to, I guess, the two front-running parties right now, as they consider their election campaigns, what would your call to action be to them? Which one of these would you say, hang your hat on as part of your election campaign, like throw your weight behind this because this is the one thing that really needs to change. It's the one thing that people care about and it's going to make the biggest difference. What would your advice be to them?
0: Ooh,
1: <laughs> political answer here, political answer. Okay, let's go for it. Um, So at the moment, my, my concern is is that when it comes to the, the the existing political infrastructure, like I'm not affiliated with, I've been affiliated with a few political parties, but I'm not affiliated with any now uh, as it happens. And I worry that from reading Labour's previous plan which was also a bit of a placeholder but from reading the existing plans that ultimately there tends to be just a few existing levers there it's like you know more money less money a bit more to the left a bit more to the right there's like a couple of knobs that they can turn but to be totally honest i think and i don't know if you've ever read any of um like homo Deus by Yuval noah harari sort of talking about you know and sapiens about how in the system ultimately you know we are based on an industrial age philosophy at the moment where we are almost promised that the public sector provision is all a capital thing it's a transaction that we do right we put stuff up and they look after our kids they provide all the health that we need all the social care that we need all of the other things that we expect our bins all of the different stuff but actually if we look across the whole public sales sector it is failing it is failing every single place that we look and it doesn't look like things are going to get better they may get marginally better but actually this is the consequence of us moving into a hyper-connected, politicised, you know, sort of populist age, we are live, starting to live the consequences of being in a post-consumerist kind of transactional age. And right now, my biggest concern is that we don't have a vision. The thing for me, for the National Health Service that I'd be saying is we need to start changing the paradigm about that care is paid for. I'm not talking about privatizing the NHS, I'm not talking about because actually that's the argument that we get stuck in. Who pays for it? Actually, why don't we talk about hours Like, for example, in Switzerland in care, we have a concept around a time bank, right? Where um you can where basically people give time to care for others and then they get it back. If we really want to enable communities, you know, and we're looking at the anger and frustration, the defund the police movement things that we're seeing. I can't get really political here, but you, know, <laughs> you asked. Um, we need to start reimagining communities. And my, my concern is is that we're always going to in we're always going to frame the plans that we're doing around place, around, you know, grassroots, local care, still within the existing mindset. And we need to have a huge paradigm change around actually, the state isn't the institution that it was 50 years ago. The, the NHS, we've got long-term conditions, lifestyle things that it can't sustain in this way. And we ultimately need to try and flip our perspective and say, How do we rebuild communities when actually the internet and digital technology allows us to be able to build that infrastructure so it's not like the kind of feudal disconnected system it was before? We can be connected. And actually, we just take the shape and model of the internet. It is a network of independent, organic entities that work well. So why would we think that this top-down hierarchical paid system is going to be effective in this age? And to be honest, this is what I spend a lot of time like slightly ranting at boards about, not politically, but that we're in this age and we need to change our paradigm. I'm not seeing that coming through from political parties. And I think I worry that it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then we're going to have a huge change. And I hope it is not as angry as it could be if it goes too far. So that's what I would
0: say to any political leader I was talking to.
2: Love it. Thanks.
0: There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what wonderful summary that is. And yeah, before we... Go too far into this rabbit hole. I will move us <laughs> to some uh, to some smart bandages and biosensors in a second. Some proper health tech, but yeah, I I agree. I think the the strain that's felt broadly about how people are living and then how our political system is built and presides over that 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 tension now feels higher than ever and it feels like it's only getting more tense as you say in this post-consumerist world where all of that has now been done and the way that we're living is so different and as you say that political system that has presided over us which is interesting terminology that i've picked um remains the same and whether it is revolution or whether it is evolution, as you say, something needs to happen and evolution perhaps is a bit less disruptive. Um, I do wonder though, about whose responsibility that is and who is going to grasp that responsibility because there will be um, beneficiaries of that. And certainly the opposite in whatever world, because any change produces opportunity where there's winners and losers. Um, And tell you what, Let's move on to some biosensors, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Our second story today is some proper health tech. Smart bandage with biosensors could help chronic wounds heal, this study has claimed. So scientists have tested this device that can monitor and stimulate burns, diabetic ulcers, and non-healing surgical wounds um this is reported in the guardian so i hope fingers crossed this is really good science a really strong paper with a good methodology and a, a decent sample size but uh liam you've had a read of this uh, what do you think it's still early days for this
1: this is this is early evidence coming through so it's you know we're not
0: going to see this in one to
1: three years um but actually um i was privileged to spend almost five years on the board of a wound and lymphedema provider one of the research institutes based in london and the like um who did a lot of you know research around specific dressings and so on the one thing that i would say is wounds isn't a sexy area of the nhs it's not one of those that gets that much attention but i can't underestimate from my working with community teams and so on how much of the workload particularly for community nurses and supporting wounds bed sores and all of these different things that come through represents in terms of productivity time for the nhs and this is actually you know like uh, there are certain areas where we go of course this is this is big ticket. But being able to get genuine sensory data that can also improve around wound care is hugely, hugely impactful. And if this can come to realization, it could be really, really powerful. And I really hope that as and when it comes through, like we're doing in genomics, that the UK will go, Let's grab this with both hands and use this as a high profile priority, because I think it should be if it, you know, um, you know, there's, um, another thing came through around protect uh, detecting 50, uh, types of cancer within blood. And the UK has got a study along with the US that they're doing around this. It'd be great to see the same kind of approach around this and it get the same level of seriousness, you know, because wound care is super important.
2: Mm. I think the article said something like chronic, like wound healing is responsible for about $5.6 billion of the NHS budget, which is huge. One thing that was really exciting to me is, ultimately, this is a wearable. And, you know, we talk a lot about all these different wearables that come through, particularly in consumer markets. You know, we've got the Oura Ring, Apple Watches. The list is endless. This is the first one I have seen that actually is for people with a health condition, specifically for people with a health condition that is really focused on that market and actually penetrating, I guess, healthcare care, and um, making people with ill health better, rather than I'm um, clearly, the, you know, lots of these wearables have benefits for people who are unwell, but ultimately, a large portion of their market is more about health optimization than anything else. I think it's just incredibly exciting. And, you know, as you say, it's, it's early days, but the potential for this is, is huge. And I think it said something about, you know, even being able to augment, like, de- dosage and delivery of medication and that kind of thing it's just super impressive and you know really quite promising for the potential impact on it on a really individual level for patients for care teams as you say and on an economic level but also on that productivity level you were saying just now that ultimately the nhs is measured in its minutes and its hours and there could be huge savings here and it's a wearable that's not an apple watch so
1: and it's a great lego block as well like you know the great thing about remote monitoring um the, all of these sensors that are coming through like you know to working towards for example eric Topol's sort of convergence of human and medicine potential that all comes together and this big data starts to create genuinely personalized real-time responsive care this is a really interesting element because actually like if we're, we take the model recently of the um the uh, closed loop circuit with a, a CGM and um an insulin um injector I can't remember the exact word but you know the uh insulin device um you could see that actually there might be opportunities to be able to add to that to be able to treat it in different ways that adds to this you know because we when we think about personalized we think about personalized meds and we think about that but actually you know, it might, for example, be that you've got that on and there's something else that sort of distributes, like honey is a really uh, good example of what they use on. There's different things that they're experimenting around wound care. And you could almost see that you could start to see a whole new market of different kinds of things that can personalize the approach of different kinds of wounds and different kinds of people. So yeah, it's really exciting. Um, and as you say, like absolutely on a very specific, you know, solving a very specific clinical problem.
0: Yeah, the tech and the business model both impressed me here. So yeah, 2.2 million people in the UK with chronic wounds, according to this. Those, those are figures from 2018. So I imagine people sat around uh, since then. That will be increased. Um, now on the tech, so this device, I know we're on a podcast, so I'm going to explain this so people can kind of visualize this. It's a stretchable, wireless, bioelectric system that can stick to the skin. And there is a picture of someone with, um, they've just, uh, in the palm of their hand, they've got this sensor, which occupies half of their index finger. It's super thin and it sticks to the skin. So it's got two parts to it, a reusable, flexible printed circuit board and a disposable patch. And in that disposable patch, it's got biosensors, it's got electrodes, it's got drug loaded hydrogels, it says, Mm -hmm. but... The biosensors mean that this smart bandage can basically measure things like temperature, pH, and levels of substances like glucose, uric acid, and lactate. And those are metrics that give you insights into whether the wound's infected and its levels of inflammation. And so electrical stimulation can be applied. Um, it's it's something that can help with wound healing, but hampered by bulky equipment. So this is enabling... Um, that, it's also enabling controlled release of anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial drugs. And all of those signals can be wirelessly sent to a computer or a phone to then track all that stuff. So from a tech perspective, this is super nice. You, you can you can see how it works. I mean, it's, it's certainly not like wild new technology, but it's clever use of that technology. And when you think about those things that it's measuring, um, the levels of inflammation, whether it's infected or not, it obviously allows for lovely visual tracking of this stuff and then actionable insights where things are going wrong. So notifications can be pinged to wound care teams to change something. And all, and this, this means that this massive burden, this 2.2 million people with this going on, 5.3 billion pounds a year spent on these wounds that end up in really bad places that require huge interventions. The idea being that if we're tracking this information, we're tracking this infection, we can actually start to jump in early and do some preventative measures to make sure that these wounds are then healing quicker, healing better, and just life is much better for those patients. So I think that is super, super impressive. And what a problem to pick. To your point, Liam, it's, it, yeah, it's it's not a sexy part of medicine at all. Diabetic ulcers and pressure sores and all that stuff. It really isn't. And wound care generally, I think as a medical student, we did have to spend time with a wound care team. Um, I, don't, I do recall that or whether we had to, or whether it was something that was part of my track on it, I don't know. But I do remember this and actually may have even been on a GP visit. I don't know. But um Yeah, I I do. I do remember. I remember it vividly. And actually you're right. The amount of work people driving around, like healthcare professionals driving around in cars, seeing one patient at a time, every hour, every 40 minutes, like it's a really inefficient system. It's a, it's a system that if, if you can imagine these sensors distributed, everyone that person was going to see in that car. Imagine if all those all those had sensors, and that one person was now just sat looking at a dashboard and only had to go and travel when an intervention was required. And yes, things need changing regularly and all that stuff, but um, it will cut down that workload. It will provide return on investment, and I think the tech is just really sensible and really cool. So, the, the the paper or the yeah, the research was out of the California Institute of Technology, which is the research that led to this device. Um, But yes, uh, really cool, really interesting for me. Can I add one point on this?
1: Wounds is an area that we don't Mm. really understand that well. And, you know, we're having our microbiome, we're having our IOM moments, we're having our genomic moments. And actually, like a lot of wound care research has been trial and error and trying to say, all right, it just cause and effect. All of this data could tell us so much around the physiology of a wound, you know, like be great to understand more about that.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we love it. Love smart bandages, love where this is going. We'll be following absolutely. Our next story this week is from the Telegraph so Babylon Health is facing a cash crunch. Um, Telegraph with <laughs> an interesting tagline here. The startup championed by Matt Hancock could have as little as 3 months worth of cash in the bank. Now, I don't want to say anything about the, the leadership of Babylon, what may or may not have led to this. And it's a, tif- it's a difficult time for tech companies. It's a difficult time for healthcare companies. It's a difficult time for everyone in and around that in between. I think my overwhelming sense when reading something like this is this is not great for our sector. It's, it's not good when a big company like this, who I think is known cross-sector, you know, Babylon will be known by many people because of GP at hand, because of the incredible progress that they have made all the way to IPO um, on that journey. They were they were pioneering, they were swashbuckling their way through various challenges. They paved the way for many other digital health companies and many other technologies. Um, and when someone like that, that's so well known across sector is facing challenges, it's It's not great for the rest of us, I would say, um, because of how our sector is perceived. Um, and also for those people employed there, it cannot be, it it cannot be enjoyable. Um, but yeah, my, my overwhelming sense is, is one of, I guess, sympathy or empathy, whichever one is correct in this instance, but yeah, not ideal. I know Liam, you've, you've had a read of this. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, so I agree with you
1: on these points. Um, I think we need to put credit where credit's due on this. Nobody could have anticipated, like like big pathfinding companies like Babylon were bringing through a concept. And actually at the time that Babylon had just kind of come to market, um, I was helping another company look at the possibility of emulating what they're doing or looking at different areas around that in quite a bit of detail. And... One of the things that really struck me is, you know, like there is a dynamic in markets that the first to market can often fall on the sword so others can follow. Right. But nobody could have anticipated that that cycle that they were breaking through and bringing around. Right. That the concept of a virtual GP, I remember reading the Ipsos Mori report talking about, is it safe? Is it is it appropriate? Like, you know, so firstly, I think absolutely they like the life cycle happened so quickly that actually, it's very difficult to be able to see how you you know it has to be time within the market as a for, you know for for you to be ahead of the fast followers to do this, and then we've had the proliferation of video technologies that are literally everywhere. So I think there is a huge amount of bad luck in this story if it does lead to the conclusion that Telegraph is saying. But I think the other thing that I would say, knowing the GP contractual framework um, and knowing the numbers with it, and obviously the fact that it is designed around. Payment mechanisms are tiered based on younger patients. You don't, They don't pay the same per patient. It's based on complexities and a number of different factors. They were getting, they were, the model of becoming a practice and a service provider will always be contentious. You know, you'll have to fight every single battle step-by-step step in the NHS. And I think... When I looked at it before, it was a very—it's a very challenging financial model to go in, particularly if you're not taking on those more complex patients. Um, you know, there is an argument in the GP contract that the younger patients pay for the um, pay for the older patients, and the dynamic works that way. However, when you're creating something that's so accessible, consumers act differently than they would with a GP practice. You know, that is NHS. So. Um, I think it was always it was always a canary down the mine in terms of work, looking at whether this ever would have worked. So um, I don't know. I, I don't feel surprised that the GP at hand model is has maybe been struggling and that it's been a loss. And it was always interesting to understand how they'd make profitability, given there are rules around general practices, being able to earn other forms of money in certain ways. So it, it, I always had question marks around that particular part of the model.
2: It's really interesting that what you say about younger patients and actually making these kinds of services more accessible perhaps changing behaviors and you saying that has actually just made me really reflect on my own experience there where uh i use gp at hand um and i use it because it's incredibly accessible i largely know what i need um and i absolutely use it more than i would if i was accessing care through a bricks and water gp service definitely um And I I never really considered that. And I I understood the argument before about obviously, generally speaking, being a less complex younger patient and they're deregistering from a local GP practice, extracting the funding associated with me, which ultimately would be attributed to a more complex, probably older generation patient. Um, And I saw that and, you know, broadly speaking, that's not optimal. But for me as a consumer, it's, it's worked really well. But you're totally right. I've utilize that service a lot, um, way more than I would have if I felt like I was bothering a doctor or stopping someone else having an appointment. I think that's the beauty of what the service they've created from my point of view is I never feel like I'm in the way or I'm depriving someone of an appointment because I can just go onto the app and there's ultimately infinite appointments available to me. So clearly I'm not depriving someone of an appointment. Um, But I've really never considered that before. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. One thing that I just want to mention here as well is I don't know whether this article, I don't know, Liam, you've, you've read it. Does it, is this, is this talking about the GP at hand model itself and that part of the business, or is it talking about Babylon health more broadly? Because Babylon health talked a lot about AI and clearly wanted to be known as more of an AI company. At one point a GP at hand was certainly a component um, I don't know how, I don't know what, what the, I guess the perception is at the minute of Babylon Health and what they're up to in the in the AI sphere with, you know, knowing how many engineers they've got and all that sort of stuff. Um,
1: I don't know if you shed any um, light on that. It, it'd be really interesting in the background because um, like I, I used GP at hand when I was in London too. And Jessica, I used it more than I, I hadn't really been to a GP before. It's just, I, do you know, what? it's like, it's like a mindset shift, right? So, but in terms of the AI, I filled in, I don't know if you filled in that dashboard, you answer loads of questions about your biopsychosocial things and your lifestyle and, it, you know, it points to your organs are at risk and you kind of sit there staring at it for a few minutes thinking, oh, no, something wrong with my kidneys. And it's not, it's just a risk group. But, um, like, clearly it was, you know, you could see that they were kind of going for the big data AI plate. I suppose the thing that I was always wondering around this is how they were planning to navigate the rules around NHS data and using it. Because as far as I understand where other organizations go up nationally and they have to make agreements about how they're using for it gps don't have unlimited control about what they use the data for and how they do it now you know there's a lot of interesting stuff they did that i think is really like really pathfinding for future care so i, I, I when i was uh, doing future care talk in hospital uh, um, on wednesday i was talking about how i think um in the future every consultation is going to get recorded and everyone's like oh what like care consultations doctors are going to hate that patients are going to hate it but in any other service we've got that and Babylon were doing that they were recording it and all of the metadata in that was really interesting but what I never saw any information in the foreground and I would have expected it would have come to the foreground around how they would have functionally gotten around training those algorithms and so on so um it's very it's very hard to be able to unpick how they did it but knowing how difficult right now it is like you know we've got Lord Darzi, um, Lord Darzi's AI uh, data strategy, uh, data recommendations coming through, I think, next week. We've got a number of things in this area around even being able to use this. That's because it's so difficult. So um, given the amount of data they've got in this, I, I wonder to what degree they've managed to use it. Um, there's, not, there's nothing I know or have seen in, in any edition, but it could be that in the background they've just been trying to, navigate lots of complex nhs rules and like they're not getting any favors from the local care system like the the um the local care system is not a friend of babylon and won't be seeking to support them to be able to get access to patient data and the and the ccg and then the ics would have played a big role in this so oh so many different factors you could consider so but don't know ultimately
0: there's just so much going on isn't it and i wonder what signal this puts out to the rest of that telehealth market as well like what what were the what was the exit potential for all of the others. And the, I know there's various business models now of, of this kind of thing, but yeah, the the whole, I guess GP at hand is obviously one of the, the and I use it too, by the way. Um, a GP at hand is obviously uh, held up as this new model, this virtual GP practice. And clearly if it cannot turn around to profitability, it's, it's obviously not the one, is it? And I wonder what happens next.
1: But let's reflect it. A couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure you probably covered it, knowing you guys, but
0: um, that
1: that um, Livy or Cree is achieving profitability, and that is well, true story. A different yeah. orientation <laughs> of completely. the same model. So you know, not every business model is meant to be successful, and they picked one of the most difficult ones to go for. You know, we explored when I was supporting another organisation: do you go service or do you, do you go middle layer? Do you go? You know, you mm. and they both went in different directions, and there was always a big strategic question: which one will play out best? And we, we, maybe we're seeing the answer of this I don't know like we, maybe we're this is based it on, the on the Telegraph answer, and the yeah. reporting right but
0: yeah yeah mm, interesting stuff but uh, yeah remiss not to mention tough times for if we are to believe what's written in the Telegraph tough times for for on Health's leadership and everybody that works there and also broadly in that in that in that sector so um, yes we wish everybody well final story today is pharma company Bayer plans to scale back women's health R&D. Interesting. Jess, what better person to come to on this than yourself?
2: Well, I was just thinking, you know, this is becoming our regular end of podcast weekly slot on women's health. I kind of think I want to make it a permanent fixture but um yeah it's just my favorite opportunity to get on my soapbox and talk about women's health every week so welcome everyone buckle up we're in for a ride i think i might be heading uh down a debate by the sounds of things but this story ultimately is about Bayer, big pharma um announcing a shift away from r&d in women's health i think this comes at a time where depending on the bubbles that you exist in and the circles that you move around. I mean, for anyone, especially women, that, that feels disappointing. Um, and I think it feels like there's been a lot of excitement and energy in the women's health space, but also acknowledgement of some of the challenges and, and perhaps where they've come from and a willingness to, to want to address that, um, and you know, broadly, we, we we've identified the fact that investment is a huge issue here, where you know women's health really struggles to get investment that perhaps other therapeutic and disease areas do. And you know, they say they're moving more towards neurology, rare diseases, immunology, and and doubling down into cell and gene therapy. Which, you know, I feel really torn because I also really love cell and gene therapy and think it's an incredibly promising and exciting area. And you know, they do say that ultimately, you know, through that. they they will likely end up focusing on some areas that do disproportionately affect women. But I don't know, it's just a real heart sink moment. One one positive thing is that they're saying that they are going to continue focusing on one product that they do have in development that is specifically for menopausal women who experience hot flashes. So it's basically a non-hormonal relief for hot flashes, which is, I think, Great, really important, and certainly something that is being talked about a lot more. Um, and I know that they've got two other phase one assets oh. that are focusing on endometriosis, mm. and it's not really clear what they're going to do with that. And again, favorite thing to do: throw some stats out there. Endometriosis is something that is being increasingly talked about and recognized as a really big issue in this space. So, about ten percent of women have endometriosis or are suspected to have endometriosis. Sixty percent of them will remain undiagnosed. And those who are diagnosed, it generally takes between four and 11 years. And I think in the UK, the statistic is around 1.5 million women have uh, endometriosis, which is the same number of women that have diabetes. I was doing some research around this story, and I found an an article in the FT that um, was an interview with the chief commercial officer from Merck's women's health spinout Organon, um, which ultimately says that it comes back to funding again, and that despite women making up fifty-one percent of the population, it, you know, particularly in R and D funding is, is such a crucial element. But by investors, whether that's private equity or venture capital, it's still very much seen as a niche. And I don't know, I just can't help but feel a bit frustrated by this story. I don't really know what else to say. And I don't want to keep complaining about it. It's good that we talk about these problems, but I want to be hearing solutions. And it's quite, you know, frustrating when it feels like you're just getting some momentum. And I appreciate that I exist in an echo chamber for sure. That actually the the, the big players that could really make a difference are deprioritizing it. So James, I know you've got an opinion. So please, pray tell, share. No, with it. I've... I've...
0: I've just done a bit of reading, right? To be honest, when I when I read the when I read it first, just looking at the headline, um, I suppose that the, the emotive language around like that they're they're no longer doing this. My mind just went to okay, I need to read about this to decide like what's what decisions actually been made. What do they define as women's health? Like, have they just changed their focus for a certain reason, or are they moving something from one side of the business to another? I don't know. I think overall, this feels a bit like poor communications contributing to what is quite an emotive story that's now come out. The same story, I know the the link that we've put in at the minute is from Femtech Insider, but Thea Spiotech have also reported on this and their headline is Bayer with new leadership stepping in, deprioritizes women's health R&D. And they've said that As part of our strategy, we're refining our early innovation framework to concentrate on areas where we anticipate the best opportunities for delivering high-value breakthrough medicines to patients, (sighs) spokeswoman said for Bayer. Now, I I just can't help but feel that this is, whether they've been caught by surprise on being asked about this or, or something, but I don't feel like there's a coherent narrative behind what they're actually doing. Like what, which projects have they deprioritized? Which, what were they doing with R and D that they're no longer doing? How many women are affected by the conditions that they're going to look into in their four new core therapeutic areas? It's, it's not that they, you know, you'd have to assume that it's not that individuals in this, bear in mind, the spokeswoman is female. Like, it's not that they don't care about women necessarily. It's just that these programs weren't as profitable for them, which becomes a business decision. I appreciate again. There's issues around funding and all the rest of it. I guess the the, the point I'm trying to make though is that it, it's really it's really clear, especially from the fierce biotech article, that you know with that sort of headline, you then bring in stats about funding for for. Women's health products and and you know female founded startups obviously is not where anybody wants it to be. That's sensible, and we've done an entire Google event uh, around this. And so you know you know my feelings. If if you went to that, I'm not saying that anyone's in the right here for deprioritizing women's health R and D, but I, th- I think this is what is contributing to the emotion here is just poor communications. I can't help but feel that way.
1: Pharmaceutical companies, as we know, as we've had problems with antibiotics, and you know all of the stories around this, are dominated by they are B two B businesses. They sell to major health systems in the US. Obviously, there's some, some disparities in different other countries. But realistically, right? Let's close the loop on how we started this podcast. We're talking about like you know the NHS is in crisis. All of the major health systems are in financial in financial problems at the moment. And ultimately, the the problems that they are looking at is not giving confidence to those who are building for the market. Now. I advise, like I, I get a lot of women's health companies who come to me for advice around what do you think about the NHS, and I say I'm really sorry, but I just don't think the demand is there for that at the moment. There is a form of lip service. There are groups. I know the people who are in them and on those groups, but realistically, that's not translating to the things that actually become demand. But actually, at the same time, to provide a slightly positive spin on this, right, we also discussed how the church and state has been slightly eroded and how more politically sensitive. Now, if I was a woman. I'd be really angry about the state of women's health at the moment and the fact that this isn't being addressed. This is a political issue, and it should be an important political issue. And, you know, I know lots of, like particularly, you know, women working in health and health tech, you know, there's there's almost a degree of fury and anger about this that is really prescient. Now, it does. can we apply this from a market perspective? No. But actually, if we have a more politically sensitive message and 50% of the population... Are represented by this, then this is almost the movement for this to shift and become the market dynamic that then drives pharmaceutical industries. You can see that there is a logical functional direction of travel if this became a
0: high priority political issue. I was literally having this conversation yesterday. I was at the World Health Organization yesterday in Denmark because I was invited to this thing, which was really cool. But I was I, I was I was chatting to somebody there about this exact thing, which was can you sensibly expect morality from a big corporate company that has a responsibility to deliver maximum profit to its shareholders? Is it therefore fair to expect these moral and ethical decisions to be made When there are individuals in those organizations that are held to task to doing a job that keeps them employed and keeps their salary going, that's one small part of a big connection of so many millions of different things going on that leads to decisions being made around profitability to then deprioritize one thing over another. It's, it's a question that I don't know the answer to, but and I, and I don't know at what level, of, what level of morality can be expected and where practically that morality must then come from. But we came to the same conclusion. In fact, the person at the World Health Organization said the same thing to me, which is actually, James, these decisions can really be affected at the political level because then things filter downwards through policy. And I have learned that previously in my career when I've worked in policy. I have seen that happen. I have seen policy change come in and then genuinely affect a market for how startups need to behave or can behave when there's more opportunity. And so this is that at a slightly different level, which is where where the politics is changed to reprioritize certain things like conditions that affect females disproportionately Where policy can be changed, it will affect R and D funding and what these different organisations can do. And I think what this person said actually is that that this this emotion and anger that can often be directed at pharma companies may be misdirected. And now, look, I have not done a big investigation onto this to really understand the ins and outs. I'm sure there are far more people that are far more qualified than me to talk about this. But I do feel on a very personal level, like it's wasted energy, me being mad at a 90,000 person sized organization that has a responsibility just to deliver value to its shareholders who in that 90,000 people can really make it bar the people at the top. That's obvious that clearly won't, but like it, but who, who, who is it that you're expecting morality from? Like Pfizer's done this, Bayer's done that. Like it's anger, isn't it? And it's, and it's like, I, okay, but, but, But are you mad at them or
1: or should we be mad at the people that could change this whole system? It's not an effective leverage point, right? So, you know, I always work from the philosophy of like, where is the most important point of leverage and what's the leverage in order to change the system in the best possible way? Now, if these pharmaceutical companies had a B2C arrangement and they were also selling like Coca-Cola or shoes or something like that, you know, um, B2C companies have shifted quite quickly because consumer activities can change but we don't have the same dynamic in pharmaceutical companies because their their customer is the system so how do you affect the system well you, you you affect the politicians who affect the system who then affect the demand that then affects the pharmaceutical companies and like you know this is a hugely emotive and rightly so topic but actually i think the key thing for me in any of these interactions is where do you apply that leverage and how do you make that come about and for me it's this has to be this has to be a, in the political sphere
0: yep And the problem with that is that who are the people that want it to stay the same and who are the people that have got the money to lobby to keep it the same? And those are the people that are in charge of it staying the same and delivering it being the same. And so where you've got big corporations that uh, have the money to lobby to keep policy the same, and you have to go against that with a public communications campaign that Influences consciousness in a way that you can turn people on to things like climate change and and things that we've seen done, and we need big people big influential people to jump behind campaigns on this to to change things. It's I know this is getting a bit soapboxy and and uh, you know big business and lobbying and all that sort of stuff, but I I can't help but feel like I've I've listened to a lot of stuff recently about this, and like my mind might have been like taken over by it, but this is this is big system thinking right this is how this is how big systems work and actually if if if, if the political parties have been donated to by a a big pharma company <laughs> it's very difficult to then say to a pharma company hey we're gonna really put restrictions on where where you put in your r&d because actually uh we don't care about how profitable you are but um yeah do sign that check for next year's uh, election race please <laughs> like,
1: yeah, particularly in the US, like because obviously the US is the most dominant market that we need that, that would drive action in this area. Like the UK, I know we like to think we're important, but, you know, yes, you know, my, my thought was, well, we've got an election next year and we could all, you know, we could all use our voice for this. But realistically, the UK is not the biggest influencer and this is the EU and the, in, and the US. Um, although there is anger in those territories too, around this exact, you know, thing that needs to be righted as soon as possible.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um... Ooh, got a bit fruity, didn't it? Towards the end, that one. Um, before we let you go, Liam, um, <laughs> what's going on with you, man? Yeah. Like, who are you helping out these days? Um, who should who should get in touch with you if they need help? Um, how's life? Tell me. Life is good. Um, I'm involved in all kinds
1: of different things. Uh, like the last week has kind of changed the game because for me, my my, my passion project is trying to run experiments with the system, so we can actually show the system how it needs to transform, and you know, like my my heart is always in running grassroots movements and care, using digital as a Trojan horse to make that change happen. Um, I've had a wonderful week working with uh, a really lovely, actually the the first research hospice in the UK. Um, they became a number of years ago, who are trying to look at how they can innovate in that and really drive grassroots movement, um, and that's that's really buoyed me for this week. But yeah, like um, I'm working with health tech companies, working with the uh, Health Foundation, working with a number of different public sector organisations. But I've got some really exciting things in the pipeline, actually, because I've been a little bit down over the last four or five months because the system has so, been so preoccupied with the challenges that they're not necessarily directly keen to do some of the more radical things that I've obviously spoken about in this one. So, um, But that's starting to come about now, so I'm, I'm quite excited for doing some good trouble over the course of 2023, so fingers crossed.
0: And obviously, a great a great end to said week. Lovely. It's it, honestly that's lovely, man. I, I think you're you're definitely someone. You know, we've spoken a few times over the years, but you're someone that is clearly nourished by doing good work and genuinely making impact. And I don't think that impact needs to be massive for you to be nourished. As you have said, if you have a lovely client that you manage to do really great work for, and something changes. It seems that you're nourished by that. And I like that. I like that sort of that momentum build of making small change to then give you the energy to try and make big change. And I think it's a system that can get us down. It is because we, we fight against stuff so often, don't we? I would say that, like, <clears throat> the, the, the like the approach, like, you know, obviously, as you
1: can tell, like, I spend a lot of time thinking about systems and politics and stuff like that. My aspiration is not to work for national bodies. It's never been that. I'm not interested in that because I don't think I'm the right person for that system at the moment. But actually, I feel really passionate about the kind of change that I want to bring around in society. And actually, for the system, if I can spend my time now trying to understand the problems, to work through them, to find the right model... I like to consider that I'm effectively honing my craft in time for when the bigger things come. So I do like that. That's how I keep myself, you know, sort of keep, keep, keep it in my mind, that working with these different kinds of organizations, understanding the different crevices of the NHS and how they function genuinely and seeing how we can make change happen in the smallest areas, which is where change happens. Then who who knows where that goes? Um, you know, but I want to see the system change and I want to be part of that story. But this is a story that we're all taking part in now. This is a huge story that across society the same conversation is happening time and time again. And yeah, like got a young child, I'm trying to balance those elements in my life and being able to spend this time really hone that craft and understand for
0: me is a great place to be at the moment. Oh, that's lovely. Well, congratulations, Liam. I think you've um you've you've certainly pieced together a heck of a career and I am genuinely love seeing where you're at now and like seeing everything that you're doing and being able to have a chat to you on this is great and um yeah glad to hear the little ones doing well mate